Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. My conversation today with uh, composer, performer, teacher, mute builder, uh, Nicholas Fife is one that I think you're going to find really interesting. Um, Nick has had a really interesting path uh, to where he is today. Um, I first encountered Nick when I was researching music to play on a post-COVID recital. And we talk a little bit about that in the interview today. So I don't want to give too much of that away, but his music is really cool. You should check it out. Check out his website. It's in the show uh, notes, the episode highlights. Uh, it is now the month of May. No, actually, it's now the month of June, which means we're getting even closer to IHS 55 in Montreal, hosted by Louis-Philippe Marcelet. If you don't have plans to attend IHS 55, it's probably not too late to take a trip up there, even if it's for just a day or so, if you're within e easy driving distance. Come check out the biggest uh, horn festival around. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Nick Fife. And uh, thanks so much for joining me today, Nick. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, so I thought a great place for us to start might be to talk about your current article in the, the most recent edition of The Horn Call, the May 2023 issue. And uh, you were very kind enough to write. It's actually a pair of articles. When we, when we got the submission from you, we we're like, hey, there's really like two articles in here um and they're part of our teacher talk column and they're they're really insightful and really great articles um do you want to just tell us a little bit about the articles themselves and maybe some of the inspiration for them absolutely yeah so really this all comes back to the injury i sustained in 2016 okay so i had a lot of time to think because you know it, i you know i kept playing for like two years but then eventually i had to take a year off because mm -hmm. you know things just got so bad and uh, that gave me a lot of time to think about stuff. And uh, I started putting my pedagogical thoughts down because I knew I was going to have to reteach myself how to play again. And I kind of wanted to have a roadmap for once that you know started taking place. Sure. And uh, and of course, a lot of stuff changed once I started playing again. You know, my my thoughts on things changed a lot because I started playing the bass trombone first when I came back. You know, because. I, you know, obviously I built up a lot of bad habits over the years on the horn and uh, I kind of needed a, a fresh restart and, uh, you know, a blank slate to work with. And so I used my pedagogical knowledge to teach myself how to play the bass trombone in the most efficient and healthy way possible. And that's, oh, I was just going to say that's that's really cool. Um, where where did you get that idea? Did was that? something you had seen. I mean, I think it makes total sense to just sort of your, your retraining muscles and rather than sort of slip back into the old way of doing things, you know, if you were to pick up a horn, you'd be tempted to try to play the way you had played before pre-injury, but it, it makes sense to sort of start over, as you said. Yeah. And it came from, so I saw a bunch of different doctors um, and about like the sixth or seventh doctor, I, you know, finally could tell me what was wrong with me. And it, it was a uh, Dr. Vander Kolk up in Baltimore. Okay. So I went to go see him and he, you know, diagnosed me with a muscle tear. And he said, the way to get back from this is rehabilitation. 
and you're going to have to reteach yourself how to play again. You can't play the way you used to because that muscle is just not going to do what it used to do. Right. So I knew I was going to have to start with a blank slate. And what better way to do that than, you know, give yourself an instrument with a slide instead of valves. (laughs) So (laughs) that the slide made me slow down. And I I had to think more about um, just really getting back to the nuts and bolts of playing. And I just had a tuner in front of me all the time. So I knew, okay, that note's centered, that note's centered. And I just used a tuner in the bass trombone to just retool my airflow, the way I thought about the way I used my muscles, oral cavity, all of these things. And then after about two months on the bass trombone, I started playing the horn again mm. and trying to re you know, start over, but you know, using the knowledge that I had gained on you know, the bass trombone. Right. Right. Now that's really interesting. What, what differences did you notice going, going to the trombone from having played the horn before? So everything's just bigger on the trombone. (laughs) You're you're still using the same muscles. It's just on a much bigger scale. Uh Um, Horn, everything's just much tighter and more compact. Okay. So it was really just a matter of replicating the same process with, you know, smaller parameters. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about the same things, just the ease of airflow, just if I ever was forcing anything out be like, okay, let's think about air. And all really comes back to air for me now. That's, you know, we play wind instruments. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's become my number one priority is like, what's my air doing? Yeah. Now, did you consult with anybody during that process? Did you, you know, take any trombone lessons or anything like that? Yeah. um, So Angel Subero. He uh, plays with the Boston Pops, okay. and I met him at the Atlantic Brass Quintet Seminar mm-hmm. when I was playing horn there. And I mentioned to him that I was playing the bass trombone, so he gave me a lot of really great advice on just playing the bass trombone and how to use my air more efficiently and support it. Because I, I was taking horn breaths on the bass trombone, and that's one thing he told me at first. He's like, okay, you just got to take in more air. Right, and that yeah. eventually helped my horn playing too because I was I wasn't really taking in enough air for the horn either. Yeah, it's a high flow rate, you know, <laughs> low pressure, <laughs> high flow rate. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's no, that's really interesting, and I think there's there's more research to be done there in terms of the benefit of not just playing one type of brass instrument, you know. And yes. I've I've seen some of your videos on online. You're a multi instrumentalist, so. Yeah. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. I don't play so much trumpet anymore because that's whew, that's tough on the injury. But uh, right. brass and horn, love it. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's pretty awesome. And so that's sort of uh, going back to this pair of articles you wrote for our, our teacher talk column. So the first one is a, is called a mindful approach to horn playing. Yes. Um, and then so that's kind of part and parcel of that. And then you had, uh, you know, when when you initially submitted it, it was it was one article, but I, you know, we thought. Uh, it was it was worthy of basically two separate articles in the column, and so the yeah. second the second part of it is uh, basically how to stay relevant in in your professional career. Do you want to touch touch on that just a little bit? Yeah. Um, so one of the hardest things for me when I couldn't play the horn was how to stay active musically. Okay. And that that year I wasn't really playing. Um, so I, I'd been composing for a long time before that. I started when I was in high school, and it was mm. terrible stuff back then. But I uh, like. Like anywhere, yeah, you know, the first step to being good at anything is being bad at it. And uh, so after composing for a long time, I thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to really do a lot of composing. 
And uh, I had just come back from the Mostly Modern Festival in 2018. Mm-hmm. And I was there as a composer. So it was great. I made a lot of connections and I had some commissions to fill. So over that year, I did a lot more composing, spent a lot more time doing that and just training my musical mind while I was developing these pedagogical ideas as well. Mm-hmm. And um, that is one thing that is really important is balance. Like, I was so heavy on the horn before the injury. Mm-hmm. Once the injury happened, I was like in identity crisis. Like, well, gosh, uh, who am I? What do I do now? And yeah. uh, so then I was like, okay, you can do other stuff other than the horn. And that's when I started, you know, diversifying. I started teaching a lot more. I started composing a lot more. And I started playing the ukulele just so I could play something. Oh, that's and, really uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And not good. I'm not a good ukulele player, but. <laughs> It was helping me just keep my musical mind, you know, active. And then I started making mutes as well. Mm-hmm. So, and that has eventually become a revenue stream, a small one, but still, you know, a revenue stream for me. So, yeah, I make mutes, I compose, I, that's also a small revenue stream for me. And to me, it was just diversifying what I can do as a musician, because you never know when the one thing you can do is just going to be taken from you. Right. Right. And uh, it's it's good to have other stuff that you can do that'll keep you in the game, because ultimately I wasn't able to build up my the performance aspect of my CV very much for the for the past almost decade. It's been pretty stagnant. I've been able to get a few things here or there, but yeah, I can't really can't really uh, go at it like I used to and, you know, take auditions and, you know, every weekend going to a different. Yeah, I just don't have the face for it anymore. But, you know, getting published, you know, you know, publishing compositions, writing compositions and uh, um, making mutes has been a way for me to you know stay in the field. And now now I'm actually I'm taking my first audition seriously you know, my first serious audition for the first time in about a decade now coming up that SC Phil has a fourth horn opening. Oh, cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Hoping to get back into that. But now after a decade of, you know, diversifying what it means for me to be a musician. I have a lot of other stuff going on too. So, right. No. And that's, that's such a healthier philosophy than just sort of single-mindedly just, you know, got the blinders on doing that one path. And I mean, I'm not, I'm not knocking that necessarily. I think everyone has to find what works for them, but, you know, I always tell students, it's like, you might have this really narrow definition of what success looks like for you, but then Mm -hmm. what happens if, for whatever reasons, you know, injury or just the changing economy and the changing nature of the way music is consumed in the world. I mean, so many things are not in your control that like, if you've only got this one narrow definition of success, it's like you're setting yourself up for potential heartache and disappointment. And so it's like from college students today, it's because for one college is so expensive and it's, mm-hmm. it's considered such a monumental decision that they're, they almost get paralyzed with that decision of like, Oh my God, if I choose the wrong, the wrong school or the wrong major or the wrong, whatever that's set me on this path, that's just going to be terrible. It's like, no, you have options. You always have options. You know, if you broaden your definition of, like you said, what is it like, what, what does that look like to be a successful professional musician? It doesn't mean just earning all of your income one way. I mean, Hardly anybody in the field does that, you know, yeah. hardly anybody in, 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 in our, in our, in our art form makes all of their money doing the one thing that they went to school to do. 
It's true. <laughs> so true. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And what I was going to, you know, share uh, how I came across you and your music first was um, post post COVID. I was looking to do some kind of a recital just to try to get back into things, and I was like, okay, I want you know, either unaccompanied music or, you know, stuff with r- recordings or fixed media or something like that. And so I was just kind of like trolling the internet, looking for stuff. And I came across your, your, your music for, you know, electro horn, you know, uh, <laughs> with, with, uh, guitar effects, pedals and all that stuff. And I was like, that's really neat. And so that's, that's how I got into your music. And, you know, and I, you and I, uh, started a correspondence and you were very helpful with suggestions for things. Um, you want to talk a little bit about, you know, those pieces. And then you mentioned earlier, you got into composing in high school, but maybe talk to us a little bit about that path in terms of your musical career. Sure. So yeah, when, when I, when I started composing in high school, it was just, you know, just for fun because I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to make music. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember vividly, I, I entered a brass quintet piece that I wrote into a competition for the university of South Carolina. and never heard anything back. And then about a decade later, I pulled out the music and I broke just about every rule that they would have taught me in, you know, um, theory one. Sure. So I get why they didn't didn't contact me back. Um, So there's there's a lot of stuff to learn from me at that point. And, you know, that's that's why college is so great is because you get exposed to all these different, um, you know, periods in music and compositional forms and you know, orchestration class, mm-hmm. all these wonderful things that teach you the skills that you need to not just write music, but write, you know, good music. Mm-hmm. And um, so at the end of my college degree, you know, I, I had been composing a little bit and arranging during undergrad, but not very much. And uh, there's this movie that came out, Tron Legacy. Uh-huh. And I remember the score because Daft Punk did this like fusion of symphonic, you know, like a full symphony orchestra with their electronic stuff. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind. The best part of the movie for me was the score because, you know, just the way they fuse symphonic and electronic sounds, it just uh, really resonated with me. Yeah, that's and awesome. So, yeah, <laughs> I immediately started, uh, you know, experimenting with that myself. And it started with just taking compositions that i liked like uh the, one of the first things i wrote was called bruckner techno and i took, <laughs> yeah i took the beginning of the finale of bruckner's eighth symphony uh-huh. um you know that really triumphant you know melody that comes in with the oh, low yeah. brass and the horns and i put that to techno and it you know it wasn't uh it wasn't the best but you know people actually liked it you know, mm-hmm. so, you know when, when i was at eastern music festival that summer somehow that popped up on my ipad or my ipod <laughs> when we were you know, listening to music and i was like oh god and i tried to turn it off real quick my buddy's like no what is that right right <laughs> and, <laughs> and um and I told him that I was experimenting with the electronic stuff and then he ended up, you know, liking it. And that was one of the moments where I was like, oh, people might actually dig this. This isn't just me, you know, having fun in my studio. So then um, so then I started actually getting serious about it and uh, writing. One of the first pieces I wrote for Horn and Electronics was called Universe Sketches. Mm-hmm. And uh, that piece, like, you know, listening back now, there's there's definitely some stuff that, you know, I would do differently. But one movement, Rogue Planet. That was the first movement I or first piece I ever wrote for solo horn and electronics. Mm-hmm. And to this day, it's still one of my absolute favorites. Um, because just uh I don't know the, the way it, it worked because at that point in my life it was kind of a 
a lonely, solitary time because, you know, I was after, it was just after my master's. I didn't have the, uh, the friends that I did during my master's. I was living in Cleveland, you know, mm-hmm. with my, you know, with my future wife, but, you mm-hmm. know, I didn't really have much going on. I was just freelancing. So I was able to capture, you know, that, that feeling of isolation in music. And it was one of those rare times where I was like, oh, I captured something there. That's great. And, uh, and that is what really got me thinking about composition in a totally different way was that piece and writing that particular movement. Um, so then you know, I went to UT, you know, started my doctorate mm-hmm. and, uh, I met some other people that were experimenting with the same stuff, you know, and, uh, Rose Volby, I think, yeah, she was, her doctoral dissertation was on electronic horn stuff. Mm. And to, at that point, I had started experimenting with the pedal board yet. You know, uh-huh. it was, it was really just, you know, fixed media and horn up right. until that right. point for me. And uh, in her doctoral dissertation, she did a performance where she had a pedal board and she was, you know, doing all these effects. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't the first time I had seen that done. I saw the Maniacal Four trombone quartet right. do this yep. before. Yep. And I think they used a silent brass mute too, maybe. Yeah, she also used a silent brass mute. Mm-hmm. And you know, I like the silent brass mute because you don't get much acoustic sound with it. Yeah. You get you get like the horn flavor, but it's really right. you get a pure, pretty pure electronic sound. Mm-hmm. And so then I started experimenting with the pedal board and you know what I could do with you know manipulating the sound of the horn electronically as well, which right. led to forces of nature, which is something that you've performed. Yeah, I I've done that piece a bunch of times. I took it on tour, I played it at some conferences. Audiences really love it. So if you don't know oh, Nick's good. piece, uh Forces of Nature, it's for horn, could also be, you know, electro, electro horn with you know different effects. And you you have some great suggestions for different effects you can use with uh it it is like rock and techno, and you know, it's it's music that's got a cool beat to it. And every everybody I've played it for just really love loves that piece. Oh, good. That's fantastic. And really, one of the reasons I experiment with this genre is because I have declining interest in classical music. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, what's the way that I can merge these popular you know, musical ideas with classical music in a way that doesn't sound like hokey and, you know, like, and, you know, some of my earlier compositions definitely did sound that way. It was like, okay, that's cheesy. Um, but you know, it's, I, I think, Finding a way to speak to the newer generation of musicians is important. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I found that even older audiences can still get on board with my music, but it's the younger generations that it really resonates with. Yeah. Because yeah. they love electronic music. Kids love it. So if you can find a way to meet them and you know where they really enjoy music, and then maybe they like the horn too, but they don't necessarily like classical music. Mm-hmm. then you can help foster that and bridge the gap. And maybe they'll start to appreciate classical music as well as the electronic music. Yeah. And you're learning, you're learning skills that you might not learn. And, you know, sorry to say this, but you're not going to learn these skills playing Koprosh necessarily, okay. you know, 
So just to kind of step back a little bit for anybody that's unfamiliar with what Nick and I are talking about. So basically the 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 workflow, if you will, here is so you have this silent brass device, which Yamaha makes, and it basically takes, you know, it's a practice mute, but it takes that sound and it's got a microphone embedded in the mute and it takes that sound and it runs it through, you know, just a little processor, just a little box. And you're meant to be able to put your headphones into the little box and then practice in your hotel room and it can add different effects from that box. But what 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 we would do for Nick's piece is you take the output from that little box and you run it through like, you know, some kind of effects processing pedal or a series of pedals, just like you would on an electric guitar. And then you run that through an amplifier. So you can, you can, there's, it's almost endless. The, the kinds of sounds you can create with the horn. It's just, it's so fun to play around with that. Once you figure out like, okay, this is how to actually get the sound from the silent brass into the effects pedal and then into an amp. And I, I ended up, buying a little mixer just so I could have a little more control over the ins and the outs from, you know, the level of the fixed track versus the level of the the effects pedal, that sort of thing. That's smart. That's something I still have yet to do, but I need to do is get a mixer. Yeah, so, I got, you know, yeah. I got a really cheap one. It was like maybe 30 or 40 bucks. And it, it was really helpful because I was finding like, it's not always easy to control things just from like your laptop or or from the silent brass. So I, I remember like if I go back and look at my music for those pieces, I wrote exactly like silent brass on 50%, you know, effects pedal on, you know, 75% yeah. for, you know, and the, the funniest thing and I remember telling students, it's like, I can play this piece. The thing I had to rehearse the most about it or practice the most is the choreography, like yes. getting the, getting the pedal changes, changing the effects, mute in effect pedal on this mute out and you know, all of this, but it was, it was such a good experience. It was really fun to do. Oh, good. I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoy it. And, <laughs> and that means a lot. And uh, yeah, you're right. That's the hardest thing about this music. You know, recently, Andrew Fiorova, he's the second horn in Charlotte Symphony and oh, cool. professor at Davidson College. We performed one of my pieces at Davidson and at the NC Horn Day because he was the featured artist for the Horn Day. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> the thing that we had to rehearse the most was passing the mute back and forth when we were trading off and when we were doing electronic horn stuff. Right. And right. Once we got that figured out, we were set. But getting to that point, it was, you know, just the transitions and, you know, getting, making sure we had enough time to get the mute in and make the sound when we needed to. Mm-hmm. And, and the, you know, no, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, I was just, that was the difficult part. Yeah. 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 And it, it is daunting probably for students, but you know, if you're, if you're a teacher and you want your students to be able to have access to that kind of music and you know, that that's something that's not going to go away. The interaction between acoustic and electronic, I I think it's, it's, it's here to stay. So you you might as well get on board and (laughs) start, start experimenting. Um, yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned Bruckner, you mentioned techno, what other, uh, musical inspirations and influences would you consider in your composing or, or performing? Um, so I think it's worth mentioning that I'm really fortunate that currently I get to work with one of my musical influences and that's JD Shaw. Oh, wow. Awesome. So, yeah. And um, so growing up, you know, my dad was a trumpet player. My mm-hmm. sister's a trumpet player. So we were listening to Boston brass and Canadian right. brass and we love brass quintet. We listen to it in the car all the time. So I grew up listening to JD. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of modeled my horn sound after him mm-hmm. and whether it was conscious or subconscious, that was the sound that I was going for. And uh, it, and eventually I, he started, you know, 
we started working together with the brass band here. Mm-hmm. So initially the brass band was kind of different. We, we just function as like a per service, you know, small brass ensemble. Mm-hmm. But then JD came on board, you know, he, he sent me an email over winter break and, and it was like two years ago. And he said, I'm starting up a brass band and I just, you know, wanted to, you know, get, get your opinion on it. You know, I don't want to like step on your toes, which is so nice of him. Thank you for emailing me. And and I thought to myself, like, oh, my God, I do not want to compete with J.D. Shaw. So <laughs> I, let's merge our projects. So that was uh-huh. that's what I proposed. And he was like, OK, sure. Because, you know, mm-hmm. I already had the infrastructure. You know, I'd already created the nonprofit organization. We already had the name. We already had the logo. It was all set. So that was a lot of work that he didn't have to do. Uh-huh. So we end up merging our projects. And now he's the music director and I'm the CEO. So he takes care of the artistic stuff. I take care of the business stuff. And this is the, yeah. this is the South Carolina brass band. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so now I get to work with one of my musical inspirations on a weekly basis. And I just played through the SC Phil Fourth Horn excerpts forum, and you know, started. Yeah, you know, it's really awesome to have that relationship with one of my musical, you know, like inspirations. And uh, so he was definitely. Yeah, you know, as far as horn playing goes, mm-hmm. absolutely, JD Shaw, and then you can also say like his arranging too. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for like the Boston Brass stuff, you know, he did a ton of arrangements for them. His arrangement mm-hmm. of Caravan, I still listen to that all the time. Yeah, I've got that album. Yep, yep, it's great. It's fantastic. So I think a lot of my inspirations come from him, mm-hmm. and uh, and beyond that, yeah, as far as like composing goes. There's such a wide world of music to draw from there. Sure. And it's, it's hard to narrow it down to just one. Um, but, you know, that that particular Daft Punk album was definitely uh-huh. inspirational for me. The one from and, Tron Legacy? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then a lot of Daft Punk albums, if I'm talking about just like electronic music, whenever mm-hmm. I'm composing electronic music, the first thing I do is write the electronic parts in the beat. Because my, my first thought is, okay, this has to groove. If it doesn't mm-hmm. groove, it's not worth writing any horn parts right and yeah I, and daft punk was definitely an inspiration for the grooves that you know i put into my particular compositions mm-hmm. um so it's it, and if you're talking about like symphonic music you know mahler absolutely yeah. like oh gosh love mahler <laughs> and you know shostakovich i you know, draw heavily from the uh romantic period and then right. the beginning of the 20th century you know and there's a uh, like Shostakovich, love Shostakovich. Yeah. That's our sweet spot as horn players. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> love the romantic era. Oh, it's great. So I'd say those are my primary inspirations when it comes to music. But yeah, it's it's hard to narrow it down. There's just so much to inspire you from the you know wide world of music. You know, yeah. you know bands like Snarky Puppy to you know like there's there's all kinds of great stuff to to draw inspiration from. No, that's that's really cool. Um, what what advice would you have for like new composers or people who are maybe kind of uh, nurturing an idea of composing, but maybe are afraid to stick stick their toe in the water and, and and start writing stuff? Don't be afraid. Yeah, you know, like I, I think the best piece of advice that I've ever gotten is uh, the uh, the first step to being good at something is being bad at it. I love and, that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's what people aren't willing to do. They aren't willing to be bad at something. And, and if you aren't willing to take those first few steps through the mud and figuring those, you know, fundamental things out, you're never going to get to the point where you're actually writing good stuff. 
Mm-hmm. I, I, I go back and I listen to some of my early compositions. And I'm just like, Ugh, oh, man. <laughs> but, you know, you had to go through that to right. get to the better stuff. Right. And uh, don't don't be afraid of failure. You know, that's 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 what we're all really afraid of is failure. And, oh, am I going to be bad? Yeah, you're going to be bad. And that's OK. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that's how we learn is by failing. Go ahead and get that out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. No, that that's that's great advice. Um, so you were you were talking about the the North Carolina Horn Day. What you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I, I I remember seeing some of your uh, stuff you shared on social media. It looked like a really successful event this year. And uh, you know, I, I've hosted you know smaller things like that myself. And of course, I've been to a lot of conferences and things for the International Horn Society. It's it's an incredible amount of work if people don't know what all goes into hosting even a single day event or if it's a multi-day event or just over a weekend or something. It's it's such a planning process and just putting all of that together. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely stressful. Yeah, like you mentioned, <laughs> uh, I've got a few more gray hairs now. Um, but it was really rewarding to put mm-hmm. that event on um, because you know, I, Travis did such a good job with it. Travis Bennett at Western Carolina, you know, the mm-hmm. year before, you know, he always does such a great job on whatever he does. So I knew that, you know, the bar was high. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons why I wanted to do this was because, you know, like not many people really know about UNCW you know, and right. what you know, we offer there. And so I thought, okay, this is a chance to like put UNCW on in the spotlight. And because mm-hmm. we have some beautiful facilities there, like mm-hmm. really just top notch. And um, so the first thing was I need a good featured artist. Uh-huh. So I thought, okay, I want to get someone from North Carolina. This is the North Carolina Horn Day. Uh-huh. I want to be a local featured artist. And luckily I know someone perfect who was perfect for the job when that was Andrew Fiorova. Uh-huh. You know, he he plays second horn in Charlotte and he's a professor at Davidson. So mm-hmm. he I knew he could teach and I knew he could play. And we went to undergrad together. And okay. Yeah, it, I was always on the right side of his bell, just soaking up all the <laughs> good stuff that was coming out. So I learned a ton from him in undergrad. Yeah, I, I learned about as much from him as I did from you know my teacher, Robert Prusen. Uh-huh. And so I knew that I wanted to invite him. Yeah, he's fantastic. If you don't know about Andrew Fiorova, check him out. He's great, everyone. So and then I thought to myself, okay. Who else can I bring in that can help do the mock auditions? Mm-hmm. So then I got, um, you know, Emily Schaefer from Eastern Carolina. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's fantastic. You know, she got her master's from Juilliard, undergrad mm-hmm. from CIM, and I think she got her doctorate from UMKC, studying with Marty okay. Hackman. Yeah, yeah. So she's fantastic. Great player, great person. You know, just the right person to bring in to help out with the event. And then Betsy, she uh, Betsy Myers at Anderson. You know, we uh-huh. went to undergrad together as well. Okay. So I knew she she would do a really good job judging the mock audition too. So had things set for like you know the horn side of things for people you know in all the events, and then I had to think, okay, what events can I offer that would be good for the general horn player, not just college horn players, but just your average like weekend warrior horn player that wants to come up and play some music. Exactly. Yeah. There needs to be a horn choir. Right. And. One, we can't rehearse all day. We need to have like a, an hour rehearsal or less. Right. So I had yep. to pick repertoire that would fit. And I kind of was ambitious, but it worked out. Um, so then there's also the Avasi video conductor, which is perfect for events mm-hmm. like that. 
And because I also got to kind of just check out for that hour or two and be like, okay, press play. And okay. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, which was nice to have like a little break in the middle of the day. Um, so Avasi was great. Yeah. You know, played through Mahler One. That was a really popular um event. And then had to get vendors. Um, uh-huh. one reason one reason I did this is a lot of a lot of the things I were doing was doing was for my horn student at UNCW. Mm-hmm. And I just have one horn student there right now, and she doesn't ever get to play in horn choirs. Right. Yeah. Right. And she doesn't ever get to play, you know, a big Mahler symphony. And she doesn't ever really get to take auditions either because mm-hmm. you know she's just the only horn player there. So she got to take a mock audition. And you know, test her metal against the EC, the ECU horn players and all the uh-huh. other horn players that were showing up. And she got to you know plan a horn choir. She got to see what it was like to host a, an event. Mm-hmm. And I think it was really beneficial for her too to see you know, to be a part of that um, because she got the horn choir experience that I was hoping she would eventually get. And uh, and she also got the audition experience. And she got to see like, oh wow, there's some competition out there. Which well, is, and and to see the the camaraderie, and to you know, and that that's sort of the the thing with the IHS. It's like, yeah, there's a lot of professionals. There's a lot of you know really driven students, but then there's a lot of people also who, as you said, are are interested in the horn, not necessarily for professional reasons, but simply because they love the instrument. They find something rewarding and fulfilling from playing it, and you know checking out the gear and all instruments and all of that stuff. And I think there's, there's a place for all of that in, in, in our community. So I think that's super important. I mean, those are the folks who, who help fund a lot of those endeavors is because they're like retired physicians and, you know, might be business people that have, you know, extra money to spend on, on horn related stuff that the average, you know, college student might not. Absolutely. No, that's true. Like I think about a buddy of mine and, uh, yeah, you know, we went to undergrad together. He came to this event, and uh, in undergrad, he wasn't really as you know, as motivated as he is now. It's mm-hmm. funny now that he's you know he's outside the world of music. Exactly, he's approaching it <laughs> as a hobby, and he's so much more interested in it than he ever was as a music major. Isn't that funny? Really, yeah, it's really cool to see because he just bought himself an awesome horn, mm-hmm. and now he he brought it to the event, and he's like super excited about it, and. Yeah. Uh, so it's really cool to see like how music, w- once you start thinking about it as a hobby again, it, mm-hmm. it becomes this magical experience again, instead of something that, you know, you're just making money. Right. Yeah. And some, you know, some of the pressure's off financially, if you've got other ways to pay the bills and then you can, yeah. I mean, it's like, I think we're always trying to get back to that, you know, sixth or seventh grade band experience of just being with people you enjoy being around, having fun. You know, you're you're not to that competitive stage yet. Hopefully, that that inevitably comes. I mean, that's just the way of the world. But I think the mm-hmm. more we can connect back to that sort of like, I just love the way the horn feels when I play it. I just like the sound that comes out of my bell, and I like being with other people and and making music together. I mean, it, I know that sounds kind of like new agey, lovey dovey kind of stuff, but it's like I think that's literally the only thing that keeps keeps you going when when times yeah. are tough. No, and I think that's I think that's the kind of stuff we need more of. You know, I I've I've played gigs with sections where you just like sit down, you can just feel the toxicity in the section. (laughs) You guys don't have any fun and you have like the most fun job in the world. What is going on? And it's like those weeks where you know I I I re-examine the horn in like a negative way. It's like, okay, what am I doing here? 
Yeah. And then there's other weeks where you sit down and, you know, you get that sense of camaraderie mm-hmm. you were talking about. And you, you you start to feel that that magic again that you felt, like you said, when you're young and this was all new. And like there's always things that you look back to, like points in your career where it's like that was a you know, really a, a key moment, like a, a defining moment. Like we, like for me, the first time I played Mahler's first symphony, mm-hmm. nothing will ever match that. Like, and because yeah. I played it up in British Columbia at a music festival and it was just like a beautiful place. The, the players were great. The people like that sense of camaraderie. It was a magical experience. And you get to stand up at the end. I mean, yeah. <laughs> and then every time I play Mahler after that, I still get a little piece of that magic that you know, yeah. I had the first time I played Mahler. I can think, oh, gosh, remember that? rainforest in british columbia like all all those memories come back and that's why music to me is so so um precious is because you make those magical moments and you can relive them by you know reliving you know the same music you know playing that music that you played in that moment yeah yeah, uh, that's that's really cool oh you mentioned the ivasi thing so for I, I, i it occurred to me that some some of some of our listeners might not know exactly what that is, but I remember back in the day, like at literally every horn workshop or, or conference, they had the Avasi room. So you want to talk a little bit about what that is in case people are interested in, in checking it out sometime? Yes, absolutely. And I want to say first and foremost, there's a, there's an Avasi network that you can access for free online. Just go oh, and that's register. Cool. Yeah. And you can just like that Mahler one um, Avasi thing that we were playing through on the horn day. It was through the Avasi network. I didn't pay a thing for it. Okay. Yeah. And you can just register, you know, email and password, then boom, you're in. And you'll have dozens of free older Uh (laughs) Avasi, you know, um, options to choose from. And like for this one, um, Rick Todd was conducting through Mahler's first symphony. Okay. So it's like, it's like a music minus one thing, but it's like you, it's an actual orchestra recording, you, whoever the people there are watching the video, you're the horn section and you're following the conductor and playing along. Exactly. And it's always a really good quality recording too. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it it sounds great. And a lot of the times the conducting syncs up pretty well, sometimes not Uh so much. And that's with the Avasi network, not all of the, the content on there is equally as good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's there's two different Mahler symphonies or there's two different recordings that you can choose from on the Avasi network. Okay. One of them works really, really well. And it's the older one, the okay. one with uh, Rick Todd conducting. And uh, yeah, it's it's great because you can get the experience of playing through the symphony before you actually sit down in the orchestra and play. Mm-hmm. These things used to be on VHS. And if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think... I want to say maybe Jim Decker had something to do with it out in LA. I, I can't remember. I might be conflating two things, but anyway, it's been around for a long time and you would, you know, originally you'd buy the video cassettes and they would come and you play them on, you know, your, your, your VHS, your VCR or whatever. But now, like you said, I think it's, it's digitized and it's all online. Yeah. Even those older ones that would have been on VHS, they've been mm-hmm. digitized. And yeah. I think those are most of the ones that you'd find on the Avasi network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I remember, you know, being at like a, a Southeast horn workshop or like an IHS and you walk by the Avasi room and there's a section of horn players in there. But then on the screen is, you know, a conductor and the orchestra and they're they're just wailing away on Don Juan or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a relatively safe place to practice this important literature. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah. 
It's great. You know, if, if you've never, if, you know, in the audience, if you've never used Avasi, check it out. Check out the Avasi network. It's free. And let's say you have, you're have you playing through Don Juan coming up. Don Juan's on there. You can play through it for free and get the experience before you actually sit down in the orchestra. That's really cool. And and Nick, I was going to say one of the one of the things that stands out to me from that that second half of your article about staying relevant is uh, towards the end you list like at least a dozen of the different kinds of things you can do in music, all of the different careers, all of the different possibilities, and of course that doesn't mean you have to pick one of those lanes. Like, like you said, you are a performer, a composer, a teacher. Now you're a mute builder, by the way, Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to checking out mine. Oh, Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah. Tell us, tell us a little about the mute, the mute building thing. This one's yours. I actually just tested it. That's awesome. (laughs) Nice. It was only like two cents sharp compared to my horn. And that is pretty darn good. Yeah, for sure. So it's, yeah, it's, um, mute building has been really fun for me. Um, especially when I couldn't play the horn, it gave me something to do when I was really anxious to, you know, uh-huh. do something to be playing my instrument. Um, but this started when I was at the Atlantic Brass Quintet seminar in 2018. Okay. No, it doesn't matter. Um, but it was, it was, it was fairly recently. Um, but I needed a bass trombone mute and I didn't uh-huh. have, cause I was there playing the bass trombone. Right. And um, I remembered that there was someone that I met in Austin that had started making mutes. Mm-hmm. And he had planned on doing his doctoral dissertation on on mutes. And I actually, he, he ended up not, you know, finishing and not using that topic. So I asked him, it's like, hey, can I use this topic? And he's like, yeah, go for it. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I asked him a few things. Like the, the, the biggest thing that confused me was the tuning system in the uh-huh. how How do you make that work? Right. And he described it like a periscope. Yeah. And if you can, you know, get to, you know, like the periscope to, you know, stay, you know, like it's all about friction. You need to have enough friction between the two cylinders to keep the you know, the inner cylinder, you know, up. What when if you need to make the horn or the mute more flat, it needs to stay up instead of going right back down to the other cylinder. Right. So he kind of coached me on how to, you know, like get that periscopic design underway. Um, and I, I actually just use paper towel rolls. Um, mm-hmm. That's one thing that I do with my mutes is I want them to be mostly renewable and recyclable or reusable materials. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the tuning system is made from um, two paper towel rolls. You just cut them up and get them to fit inside each other. Sure. And a little bamboo stick because bamboo grows really fast. It's fairly mm-hmm. renewable resource. So um Anyways, I've I've digressed on the topic now. No, but, that's cool. And I was going to say, like one of the thing that's a, one of the things that's attractive about your mutes, in addition to that, is the the price point is affordable for students because mm-hmm. you know everything's expensive these days. Yes, <laughs> you know, yeah. pick, well, from whatever it might be, it's just everything has gotten more expensive. But I was like, hey, these these mutes are handmade. They're you know you're you're just making them there uh, by yourself. And you know, I was like, yeah, I might as well check one out and 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 see see what i think yeah and i'm so thank you so much for doing that and oh, I'll, sure i'm gonna send it off tomorrow i need to reinforce the corks one more time with super glue but it's gonna be in the mail i think tomorrow morning i'll send it off that's awesome uh, so my mutes are a little bit softer than your average horn mute uh-huh so you don't get the higher overtones that you would get with like a a brass 
horn mute or mm-hmm. like with a purely wooden horn mute uh-huh. um it gets and that's one thing that you get with a lot of other types of mutes so when i was doing my dissertation on this topic um one of the there are, there are a few different components one i wanted to study the history so mm-hmm. I, I found there weren't that many sources um yeah i found a few different sources to draw information from and just learn about the previous construction you know and history and just all the different models of horn mutes that have come before. And I learned that I was making Riddich style mutes. Right. So that's, yep. that's good to know that. Um, and through that process, uh, like there's this one, one part of the dissertation was on the acoustical properties of the mutes. Mm-hmm. So I use Logic Pro X to um, find the average frequency of all the mutes. I I think I had like a dozen different types of mutes that I was doing that for uh-huh. on top of my mutes as well, just to test their average frequency against the average frequency of most types of horn mutes. Uh-huh. And I found that my horn mutes offer a little bit of a lower average frequency or a darker okay. sound. Sure. Um, yeah. And oftentimes when you put a mute in, you'll get brighter. You know, that's, that's mm-hmm. one of the things that you get as you get a higher average frequency. So my mutes offer more of like a muted horn sound that doesn't have those higher frequencies. Okay. It gives you more of like a characteristic horn sound without the the higher frequencies added in or the brightness. Mm-hmm. You get more of like your horn sound, but muted instead of uh, a brighter version of your horn sound, but muted. Mm-hmm. And they're, sense. you know, and they're all different. It's worth, you know, if you're a serious horn player, it's worth having a couple of different kind of mutes. Cause I remember I was doing something just like for a new music festival we have in, in, in our area, the new music on the Bayou festival. And it was something really, really fast muted. And it kind of was like in and out of the mid low range. And like one of the mutes I was using, it was like my go-to mute for most things. It was just was like not working for whatever reason, mm-hmm. just the way it was changing the the response of the instrument or and, and stuff like that and then i was like i gotta try something different here because this no matter how hard i'm wood shedding this it's just not working and it was like i tried a different mute and lo and behold it just like cleared up the articulation in that and so it's, yeah it's it's worth having uh you know different options for sure oh yeah so when i show up to a gig i have my uh just my um gosh is it a I can't think of it. It doesn't matter. But I have one of my mutes. I think it's a Marcus Bona mute. Uh-huh. And it's, you know, it's mostly wood. There's some veneer, but you get that brighter, usual sound that you get from mm-hmm. mute. And I also bring a metal Joe Rao mute too, just yep. to have, if I need even yep. like a little bit of a brighter sound. And then I have my mute, which functions really, really well as an echo mute, where oh, cool. you need like a, a softer muted sound. Right. That's what my mutes do really, really well. If you need a loud mute sound, my mutes are not what you want. <laughs> but <laughs> if, if you want something that really dampens your sound, it makes like an echo effect, my mutes are really good for that. That's cool. And and so you're, you're, the name of your company is The Mute Peddler, right? And people can yes. find that online if they want to check out what you have. And you have trumpet, trumpet, a couple of different horn models. Mm-hmm. Um, and trombone and euphonium. Okay. Um, pretty much the only one I don't have yet is tuba. Um, oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, you have to retool your workshop for a tuba mute. Yeah. I have, I've made one, like the picture on the website is me with the one tuba mute I made. Uh-huh. But it's it's definitely I need some more research and some more time before I'm ready to sell. <laughs> <laughs> they just look so funny when they put those things in. I mean, it's just such a big operation they're dealing with there. <laughs> oh yeah, 
and you got to have the handle or else, you know, it's just not going to work. Yeah. You know, there's, there's all, there's a bunch of stuff that goes into making a tube of mute. So it's, uh, I, I still need to do some more research there, but I have my euphonium mutes are, you know, they're pretty good. I, I, I'm comfortable selling those. That's awesome. Yeah. And be sh- be sure to check out Nick's Nick's website and all the all the cool stuff he's into. Check out his compositions, check out his mutes. And uh Nick, it, it's been such a pleasure talking with you today. Um, is there anything folks can look forward to in the future? Any any upcoming projects you have? Yeah. So this summer I'm recording two of my compositions. Um, one is called Wind Power, and it's for horn and berry sax and electronics. Oh, cool. So, recording that with Anya um see ya. and she's a Barry Sachs player from New York City okay and uh, she's yeah Anya Anya Combs yeah she's gonna do a great job I need to talk to her and uh we're gonna get that recording underway soon and then um there's also I'm gonna re-record the piece that Andrew and I played at the NC Horn Day okay we're gonna actually sit down and make a, a studio recording of that so those two projects, and mostly this summer, I'm just going to be relaxing and uh, healing mentally and physically from the last decade of higher ed. Awesome. <laughs> well, good luck with that, and uh, I, I look forward to uh, seeing seeing what what's next for you. Thanks, James, and thank you for the opportunity. I had a great time talking to you. <laughs>